child, things are gonna get easier. Ooh, child, things will get brighter. Ooh, child, things are gonna get easier. Ooh, child, things will get brighter. Welcome to Oops, I Talk Politics, the left-wing political podcast where we talk about politics. I'm Ryan. I'm sorry. I'm not Phil. I'm Daryl. Phil's out right now. Yeah, so what happened was, uh, we're going to have a Dark Futurality episode next episode, and we were like, we should break up all this uh, doom and gloom talk and talk about some positive things, and Phil's like, I'm not having any part of this. The world is shit, you guys are shit. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, and then he he flew away out of America. (laughs) (laughs) He also might have just gone on vacation. No, no, it, he he definitely just flew away because he, he loads us and loads America. Uh, seriously, though, uh, we are going to have a Doom Gloom episode. So to segue between that, we're going to have a positive episode. Optimistic, an optimistic outlook into optimistic the future. Outlook. So we'll do, what are things to look forward to the future in this episode? And we'll talk about, no, what we're going to die next episode. So <laughs> you're welcome, listeners. I mean, I, I like I like hearing bad news first and then good news. No, you gotta make them feel good, then you gotta crush them afterwards. <laughs> I just want to get out in front, and we're gonna be talking about things like are more like down the line, like things like a lot of time from now. The thing that I want everybody to look forward to the most is voting in November, you fucking idiots, and you better Baby. vote. That's how you get the people to come. You, pro- you probably shouldn't call our our listeners. You fucking, fucking brain damaged, <laughs> mentally incompetent. Uh, if I learned anything from 2016, it's angry people vote more often. <laughs> but then they'll be like, you know what? Fuck Ryan Lynch from that. Yeah, you don't pocket. want revenge votes. They're yeah. like, yes, more Paul Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. This is there's lots of things you could do in the small in the small I don't know what word I'm trying to in say in the small time frame we have available yeah here. <laughs> but we're gonna focus on some bigger picture things that maybe society will trend towards mm-hmm. hopefully if we don't die hopefully hopefully yeah and one of those hopeful things is the hopeful generation that's below us which is Generation Z they're the young kids they're born from around like 95 or 98 to 2000 the mid 2010s I think. Sounds about right. Basically, if you don't know, the the generations go uh, the silent generation, baby boomers, Gen X, millennials, and then Gen Z. And we're all within like 20 years of each other. Yeah, everyone on the show is a millennial. We're like yes. uh, 90s and yep. uh, early 90s born and shit like that. Yep. And so um, Gen Zers, you know, the the biggest piece of news, obviously, is the the, the Parkland students that are staging protests, you know, they, they were like just on the daily show and they're really spreading their, their um, gun control and gun safety message. They were on the cover of time. Yeah. We're recording this the day before the big March. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The demographics for the Gen Zers are they're They're more positive uh, the, or they're more optimistic for us liberals than like uh, uh, our demographic. 40% have fo- liked or followed a campaign online and a little less than 20% have contacted an elected official or attended a public rally. Um, of Gen Z students entering college, 64% oppose a uh, border wall. 80% believe the federal government should address climate change. 70% believe that the wealthy should pay higher taxes. And 68% said gun control laws should be more strict. Those are some good numbers. I like those. <laughs> and so far... Uh, 36% of those that are entering college identify as far left or liberal compared to 24% of millennials when they were first entering college in the late 90s. It gives you some optimism for the future, but there's also like Gen Z's a little more specific than that. Like they're not just like us, but like even more far liberal and socially minded. They're going to be our liberal saviors going to come and uh, change America. <laughs> the big our... thing I see a lot of articles online I was looking through and like even like, you know, National Review reports on this is that Gen Zers are fiscally conservative. And, oh, uh, I've heard about that. Yes, yes. Yeah, that during a, a poll that the Hispanic Heritage Foundation did before the election in um, 2016 80% of them consider themselves fiscally conservative. And they they 
polled some more opinions of them, and 36% of the white people say discrimination against white people is as serious a problem as discrimination against people of color. 38, 38% believe diversity efforts almost always harm white people. 38% of white people. Mm. And uh, when they polled them in 2016, they found that 34% of the total students would vote for Trump and 20% would vote for Clinton. Wow. But currently, right now, 74% of Gen Zers hold an unfavorable view of Trump. And it's 35% positive for Trump among whites and 5% positive among blacks. That's interesting because, like, when I was in high school, like, we've talked about how, like, Sly was a libertarian and, like, I was a fiscal conservative. Mm-hmm. Like, I wonder how they will evolve because, like, I got more liberal, like, across the board. I But if they're already socially liberal, like, I wonder if the fiscal side will catch up or if it's, like, a gut reaction to growing up in Obama's America. I wonder how many uh, people... I, I, uh, I don't know if the numbers for millennials at this age, but I feel like... Because uh, from what I've read in studies, everyone becomes more liberal to grow up. Uh, like, as, if, by time, like, the stereotype is all people are all fucking conservative. Become, become more conservative. You learn, you get, you get a job. You want more of your, ta- your tax money to yourself. But in reality, uh, as you grow older, uh, you become smarter, more aware of stuff. And like, especially once you become, once you raise higher, you become, you become aware of like government programs, how they help benefit you and stuff like the, that. The thing that I read, and uh, this is actually, this is again, this is completely unsourced. So take this as you will. But I read that as like all the previous generations, when they got older, they actually did lean more conservative. And it was only Gen X under Bush that they started leaning left instead of right as they started getting older. I need I need to find the original uh, study I I read because because I I heard it was like a, it wasn't just Gen X from what I read I remember it was a general rule and the people who are who do become conservative who seem conservative in old age were usually even more conservative like the 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 general idea is at fifty you peak in like oh, your extremism yeah uh, conservative extremism yeah. So it's not like as a trend they got more liberal or conservative. It's that they were farther conservative and it like softened a little. I see yeah. what you're saying. That yeah. makes sense. And I mean, I think that makes sense because over time, you know, our view of what's conservative and liberal does shift. Yeah. I, I saw some people were mentioning about like Gen Zers. It'll be interesting to see how just like a lot of people under Bush, all that did was turn them away more liberal. And people you could actually see this during uh, Obama. You saw more people drifting to the right, whether or not Trump is going to start doing this to moderates, you know, start pushing people left. Because, again, people always blame the problems of society for whoever's in power. So they're going to look at Trump and they're going to be like, well, Republicans obviously don't know what they're doing. And spoilers, they're right. It'll also be interesting to see because Trump is so extreme. Mm-hmm. Like, does he push people further to the left or does he kind of warp people's views where, like, he's extreme, so it might make people like Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell look less terrible? Yeah, also, like, it might make. I don't know. It might make uh, milk toastism look more like uh, the Bible path saying, Yeah, we just exactly. Had, we just said Trump, so now we have to all compromise. We have to all give the Republicans exactly 100% what they want. We have to make sure the markets are stable at all costs. That's definitely like one of the hardest things about like when I was looking through and I was pouring over the data of the stuff that they pulled of these Gen Zers like still in high school is that like, again, uh, such a a low percent of them actually do vote or did vote. We don't know what 2018 is going to look like. But like, uh, especially if views change over time where it's again, this doesn't tell you too much about what the the future holds which is why i went into it trying to be optimistic because like you feel energized by the parkland students and you're like man these young people they're so like socially active and they know how to use twitter and get around like pr campaigns and they're, they're probably gonna be so uh, socially minded and when i was seeing all the stuff about them being more fiscally conservative or that they have the same exact like divisory lines as millennials have where you see a lot of white men frocking to trump Whereas, like, you you see minorities, it's, it's the same exact thing where it's, like, only 5% of black people like Trump. And most of them, like, I think 70% said that racial matters are very important to them, 5% of African Americans. This is what, this is what, uh, one of my ideas, and it might trigger Ryan, because I know he gets upset of this. Because, like, a lot of people believe in the idea of general progress. Well, I believe there's a waxing and waning of trends. Mm-hmm. And uh, millennials are, uh, might be more fiscal, less fiscally conservative because we were uh, we were more conscious during the 2008 crash, and that's mm-hmm. already way way past in, in 
in the past, and that's a general trend throughout history. People become uh, more conservative, they become more comfortable, and it's, it's uh, so. Maybe when the next crash happens, which it will happen, maybe that gener- maybe generation Z or generation after them will become more uh, more liberal on on uh, fiscal policy. One of the things that I I wonder about too with what Daryl was saying about the like the how they feel like white people are more oppressed than previous generations and stuff. It, it's imp- it's important to note that I looked up and it's still again statistics are higher among. I couldn't find which generation just said older generations that you have more, you know, white males feeling oppressed or feeling that racism is as bad against white than these than the Gen Zers. Oh, OK. And but even with that higher, you said like 38 percent or something like that yeah. of Gen Zers. I wonder. Yeah, I, th- I think it's something like 48 percent with older people. I wonder if especially for white men, I wonder if that is a knee jerk because like we are losing the majority every year. We're further and further away from being the majority, you know, mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and we're, we're, and I use the term very loosely losing power. We're really, we're just balancing the scales a little bit more, you know, we're getting closer and closer to equality. I wonder if those white men are like buckling down harder than ever. Well, people, yeah. people, human beings generally, if we look like if you if you're losing ground, you're generally somewhat more uh, focused on your own well-being, and it, like uh, the jobs and like positions of, of power that used to be exclusive for you, now you're losing them. If that happens, a lot of them are going to just be, be reactionary and be like, "No, I, I, that's where the idea of conservatives come from. Like, I don't want things to change. Things were good the way they were. That's how we yeah. built the society. Why mm-hmm. are we changing it now? What, what the fuck are you doing to our yeah. society?" And I just wonder if as time goes on, like that voice will be less and less important because like, as we saw in Alabama, like black women saved our fucking asses when they voted for Doug Jones. Like, I wonder if even though 38% of, you know, of like Gen Z, it is less. And I wonder if that's less because there's less white men or it's less because they're like waking up a little. I don't know. I I think you can see it as, as both. I would definitely, I, I would be inclined to say... It's tough because I'd be inclined to say that it's it's more the former that you just have less white men, so their anger isn't coming through in the statistics as much. I also feel like uh, there's less of them, and they're becoming more and more. The decisions are becoming more and more irrational. And like uh, Trump is a good example. Like a lot of people mm. uh, call him the last uh, gasp of the white male. Like, yeah. as maybe hopefully, like they'll they'll probably like people act like if another minority takes over, uh, everything will be solved. But probably will be like. Anyway, anyone who's comfortable is gonna be an asshole. That's general of life. Mm, (laughs) But like, there will be a. uh, Hopefully, we get uh, after white men go down a bit. We'll get at least a bit more equal in terms of representation, and hopefully, there won't be one demographic controlling everything. One of the things I wonder about that, like that Sly brought up, and like I, I did, I really firmly believe in how you said the waxing and waning, you know, like the swinging of the pendulum. Is I wonder. If in like 2020, if we push hard for a Democratic candidate and they win and they're a minority and they run on like a lot of social identity issues, if how much of a kickback we see from the angry white male demographic, we we had everything because I feel like I feel like, but but I feel like, no, I feel like we're already like so mad because of Trump. It's like, how much worse can it get when like they're in their death throes type of a thing? Oh yeah, I can't imagine. Because this, that's this is them thing. like resurging up and like they're they're identifying with each other a lot more. You know, you see a lot more like pushing for European nationalism. Yeah, because like I said, it's coming worse and worse because uh, they're losing more and more ground. They're becoming yeah. more desperate to hold on to the ground. Like one way I've heard of how fashion is described is a compromise of capitalism. Like we will keep capitalism for us as long as we can. Uh, we can, we uh, basically. Mm-hmm. We will screw over whoever we can as long as we keep capitalism for our select group, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, white, uh, the white uh, male or the white, white shitty people in general are like, we will fuck over the minorities coming in here, uh, the uh, blacks trying to get their votes, the Hispanics trying to uh, uh, come into this country. We'll fuck over them, we'll deport them, we'll do all this shit to them as long as we get uh, to keep our positions of power. And we'll, we'll negotiate with Nazis, we'll go negotiate with anyone as long as we get those positions of power in control. Yeah. But like... It's I, I just Sly and I have had this debate a lot of times. times. Yeah, I'm sorry for bringing it up. I'm, no, I'm, no, it's it's fine. It's just because I wonder and worry that like is Trump the last vestige or is he the beginning of like because if they keep voter suppression and stuff like yes, it's yeah. it's not gonna stop the tide, yeah. but it will slow it down. 
And that's my worry is like how many bodies are going to leave behind in that mm. slowing down process. Yeah. And that's why we looked towards like Generation Z because we're really concerned with, you know, what are they going to be like? How are they going to react to this, the, the landscape as like, are they going to be more accepting of equality and trying to uh, lift each other up? Or are you still going to see the, the remnants of the, the patriarchy in the white men as they're like fighting to... To, to, to stop the decline of their superiority over everyone else or dominance yeah. not superiority i mean it's never like white men are always going to be white men where they're just like a bunch of shitty assholes K- kind of i i feel like you can still culturally change a lot of yeah but yeah. that's the thing is i want that 38 percent to be i want it to be none but like i'll settle for two that sounds fine yeah. it's 30 it's it's actually it's 38 percent of white people it's 48 percent of white men <laughs> yeah mm. but uh, that's not but it's always important that uh it's why men are the more people power but yeah, keep mm. in mind like white women uh still like what is it 40 percent of people for trump like uh, like uh white people in general are, are pretty shitty because they're the people in positions of power and they're gonna mm-hmm. do anything to keep those positions of power even if it means voting for a guy who doesn't believe in our system of government and who doesn't know anything about how anything works and wants to t- destroy our country from in- internally. Mm-hmm. That would never happen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's actually, it's it's cool that they're uh, more liberal on a lot of social issues. I guess we'll have to see how the, because fi- again, I, I feel like a lot of times in high school, you don't have a good grasp on fiscal issues or how like the world yeah. operates. It's more like how your community or how your dad treats you with money. <laughs> I feel like fiscal conservatism is like something that you lo- you grow out of in college more yeah. so than high school. Uh, mm. One thing to know, uh, one thing to know is liberal is always a dirty word. Fiscal conservative is like the most admirable thing in our media. They're yeah, always yeah. Saying, That's that's where you gotta be fiscal. I'm a fiscal conservative. I'm so good at being fiscal conservative. That's what yeah. even even like uh, Democrats consider as an admirable thing. Uh, social it's liberal synonymous system. with saving money. Which which you should do. <laughs> being responsible, saving yep. money, being practical, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And it's funny because I I I I hit that I hit the trend of oh my god we have to go full communist now in college. <laughs> and, and I talked and I argued and, and I, I don't know I think I mentioned this episode before where I talked to argued with Phil. Phil was uh, is was generally social in college too, but he argued with me saying most people don't care about fiscal issues. People care about social issues. And now he's like, no, we gotta fucking go make sure we have solid fiscal policy now. Like he's big on fiscal policy now. And I feel like it's generally it's, it happens eventually as you grow older and understand more about the fiscal world. But it's harder to make it immediate and understandable. And you have to have experience. With with having being screwed over by a financial firm, you have to read into it. You have to have some catalyst to make you interested in it because it's not something people are generally interested in. Well, I'm always yelling, like not on the show, but in my daily life. Like it gets me so mad that liberals don't care about fiscal policy. Mm-hmm. Like, and I'm not saying like Democrats because they're usually a bunch of like neoliberal assholes in power. Yeah. I mean like regular voters. Like it is easy and important to radicalize over issues like guns, over issues like you know civil rights. That mm-hmm. is very very important. But I think we should also be fighting for fiscal issues because like they go hand in hand. Yeah. And, like, I'm not saying that we should talk over the social, the SJWs and stuff, but, like, there's, it's, when I start talking fiscal policy, my liberal friends, like, tune out. And, like, that sucks, because it's important. Yeah, like, the reason why Martin Luther King was a a socialist, like, because he he believed social justice cannot be uh, uh, achieved without economic justice. And Ryan's right, you should never be like, oh, economic justice is more important than social justice, fuck social justice. But anyone tries to tell you, Oh, economic justice is, is whatever. Fuck that. Social justice is the only thing that's important. That's also bullshit. It's it's because, uh, like we said, white people are the ones in power. The people who get the most benefit from our current system are white people, and that means the people who get screwed over the most are are, are women and minorities. Like a single mothers get screwed over economically. Socialist policies help single mothers, and they help minorities. They help them get educations. Those are important. Mm-hmm. It's important to uh, do hand in hand social issue social justice and economic justice because yeah. if you have one or the other then you're having uneven society justice is not being fulfilled either way mm-hmm. to quote martin luther king at stanford in 1967 it is a cruel jest to say to a bootless man that he ought to lift himself up by his own bootstraps yeah mm. that's a good quote yeah so on the good news about the younger generation uh, i don't know how much of it this is probably more our generation unfortunately us <laughs> fucking socialist bullshit everyone's bullshit milk bullshit socialist bullshit everything's all bullshit 
but it's more our, our thing. But 76% of the increase on union membership in 2017 was workers under 35. Younger people are contributing a lot to the rise in unions nowadays. And that's what segueing into my topic, which is now we're having this big increase in worker consciousness again, which it's been dead for so long. Like general philosophy in the 90s and 2000s was that unions were obsolete. We kind of out, outgrown them. Like, I don't know what the, I don't even know what the fuck the neoliberal idea is, but basically unions are kind of dead and now it's time to move on. But now uh, we had recently had a strike in West Virginia. Yeah, the teacher strike. If you saw the map, every fucking district in West Virginia was on strike. The whole yeah, that's fu- not being hyperbolic. No. Like, literally every school was closed. Yeah, yeah, every school was closed. And the West Virginia seniors did not have a labor con- uh, contract with the state. Uh, they're one of the lowest paid uh, teachers in the nation. And they have not had an across-the-board raise in four years. They walked off the job in February tw- uh, 22nd saying they've been pushed to the brink by low pay and rising costs in their health insurance plan. The strike lasted for two for almost two weeks. It grounded the state public schools for a halt for nine days. Uh, the governor James C. Justice, which is a fucking awesome name, uh, <laughs> he signed the bill to give the teachers state uh, and state employees a five percent raise. Uh, Mr. Justice, as this article calls him, this New York Times article, Mr. Justice, he's a Republican, but the, and he's a Republican. He signed this bill, and the bill was passed unanimously in Republican legislators. So when people tell you that, oh. Uh, Democrats uh, are the ones who can appeal to. Republicans are a lost cause. No, if you have enough direct action, the bullshit that neoliberals tell you is that you just vote for the people in power and they'll solve problems for you. That's always been bullshit. It's always been direct action from the voters. You have more power than you think. And this is a good example of it because they got a, a, a Republican governor, a Republican legislator to unanimously pass this bill. Because they have so much pressure. We have pressure as a worker. They still need you as a fucking worker to do the bullshit elitist <laughs> policies. But... So you need to, when you're giving stories, you need to try and just it contain contain the anger towards the I, bullshit policies. I know, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I can't help it. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I apologize, viewers, listeners. <laughs> I'm sorry for calling you viewers, and I apologize for being angry. I apologize. I'm fucking angry. No, but I think, I think that's an important point, that, like, the neoliberal mentality is that you as a worker do not have strength. It's only as, like, a democratic voter. Yeah. But when you see organized labor pushing a fully Republican state, basically, they, they took their leverage, yeah. and they got what they wanted. Yes. Mm-hmm. Through organization and activism, you can win. It's yeah. hard because a lot of these times, like, we sit there and we, we talk about the organization and activism and, like, how, how good it is to always do it. But, you know, it comes at a cost of time and energy and the fact that these teachers are basically sacrificing their jobs to try and make a point. Yeah, that's that's yeah. why that's where the sacrifice comes in. But yeah. the, the thing is, like, uh, we are basically taught in the modern day that you have no power as a worker. It, that's the thing is, you have power. It's just, it's always at the fear of, like, you know, would you sacrifice your job for the, for getting better benefits type of a thing. And a lot of people are like, no, like, I wouldn't do this. These are the big fucking hypocrites that say, like, it's better to be polite than right, but yeah. then they vote for Trump because they're a bunch of fucking assholes, <laughs> yeah. so whatever. That shows you how severe uh, these financial crunches are, because people do have their jobs online, and they're still like, no, I have a job online, but I can't I can't live like this. I can't live mm-hmm. in these conditions. I have to have a better pay. I have to have a better health care. What's also cool go- that was in, throughout, for so many teachers, there's this social consciousness of the, yeah. the, the the state that they're in that they all were like we have to do this and exactly. now is the time to do this yeah uh, and one important thing is teachers uh, ignore the union leaders made a deal with the governor and they said the governor promised okay we'll pass the thing just go back to work and union leaders are like hey, go back to work everyone and the teachers are like they told the union leaders so even the union leaders are not commandeering this fucking movement teachers said no we want it passed you pass it now or we're not going back to work mm-hmm. you, you, you and they waited until the bill was officially passed to, to go back to work and that was really important because uh, we talked about a few times that in the in the seventies and sixties the union leaders were the big powerhouses and they were corrupt. Mm-hmm. But like this shows that this is the workers are like this is a very communistic idea like seizing the means of production. Like even the union leaders aren't <laughs> going to commandeer this fucking movement. No, we're going to get our benefits. We're going to get it. We don't even trust you union leaders. We're going to get it without you even. We're going to make sure we get our, what we came for. Yeah, yeah, it, it's very like bold of them to be like, no, you are gonna do what we want, and we're not going back to work, and until this gets passed. Yeah, and one of the people quoted in, in this New York Times article says it's not the raise as much as it is, as much as it is 
having the respect that we deserve from the government. And I think that was proven today. And that's mm. a really good point. Yep. As an aside, like it's really it's really weird how Republicans always bang the drum the hardest on you can't trust the government. They're always yeah. the sleaziest and worst, especially with the legislation. It's like, no, don't worry. We'll pass this. Like, we won't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And they, they do all the time. Like, yeah, they always do. DACA. What the fuck's wrong with DACA? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And everyone, everyone in the media, the media helps this shit because they're like, of course the Republicans are going to be monsters. But like, and that gives them leverage to be monsters because <laughs> the people are, are assuming they're not being monsters because the media keeps saying they're not going to be monsters. See, I, I just, I remember during the, the 2016 Republican primary, how just upset I was of Chris Christie being like, government workers are slime balls. This, after yeah. like the whole bridge fiasco with him, I'm like, you're just a, this piece of shit, this hypocritical little yeah. slug. No, but you can trust them because, you know, Schumer stopped the shutdown because we got a promise on a DACA vote that happened two weeks ago, right? <laughs> yeah, that definitely yeah. happened. And it definitely <laughs> happened. We got it. We got it right now. As we're recording, we're reveling in our DACA news right now. It wasn't in the fucking spending bill. Yeah, so. you know, I know. <laughs> I know, Ryan. <laughs> this this is just one well, one time we won. We Victory. This has basically sparked a new resurgence in teacher strikes. An Arizona music teacher and organizer for his Facebook group, Arizona Educators United, uh, Noah Carvelis, uh, she said that West Virginia strike has woken up a sleeping giant among teachers. She started uh, hashtag Red for Ed, a campaign in which teachers lobbying for a pay raise were read to protest outside of the state capital in Phoenix. In just two weeks, AZ Central reports that Arizona Educators United has attracted more than 34,000 members. They've not set, mm. uh, dead for, uh, set a day for a strike yet, but uh, they are going to have a day of action protest on March 28th. In Kentucky, five districts closed to attend a rally in Frankfurt to protest State Bill uh, Senate, uh, Senate Bill 1, which will hurt teachers' retirement benefits and traditional pensions for future teachers and cutting the cost of living benefits for those currently retired. Oklahoma teachers, which are the most, the biggest uh, followers of the West Virginia trend, They've told state legislatures they have until April 1st to give teachers their first raise in, in 10 years or they will strike. Also, Oklahoma, if I recall correctly, was the state that couldn't afford to keep school open five days a week. Yes, yes. Since 2008, Oklahoma has led the nation in cost of education 23.6%. Uh, student enrollment has increased, but funding has decreased throughout that entire time. And like Ryan said, they'd be cut fucking closing uh, libraries and shit in that fucking district. It's fucking... Yeah. <laughs> I'm, trying, I'm trying to avoid being mad, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> So momentum has to, for the walk has, has been uh, growing since the failure of the Oklahoma legislature to pass a pay raise. They have a Facebook group, Oklahoma Teachers Walkout. The time is now. The group has over 69,000 mem- members. How many thousand? 69,000. <laughs> oh, yeah. Hey, nice. <laughs> God and, damn it, you uh, guys. So we have, have this big uh, growing movement with the, uh, the teachers. You also have incre- increase in union membership, uh, like I mentioned, with the younger people. Also, you have new aspects of the economy gain union leadership. This one uh, interesting article I read. Now they're having in, in San Francisco during the Game Developers Conference. Uh, game Developers yes. having yes. talk. Yes. Yeah. That, which I, I was super like excited about because it's about time that they get they stop being exploited by the industry. Yes. Like Rockstar is pretty notorious for making their workers work yeah. long hours, especially during crunch. I only have, really a little awesome bit, I, I have a little bit of experience of this because I actually uh, worked with developers and I have a few friends with developers. Mm-hmm. And if those don't know, uh, you, uh, you have a lot of overtime. And even when you have, even when you go come home, they'll, the boss will call you and ask for shifts from home. Uh, excessive hours, like very little, very uncertain projects. Yeah, and crunch itself can go on for weeks and weeks and weeks. And that's when you're working like really crazy hours every yeah, week. So, yeah, and at the conference, uh, Game Workers Unite uh, movement is trying to argue for uh, unionization. Uh, Jen McLean, the executive director for the National Game Developers Association, said unionization is dumb because hundreds of people lined up to... Because there's <laughs> hundreds of people lined up to take a worker's place. So if you, if you, if you go and strike, uh, another worker will take your place, which I think is fucking stupid because if you know anything about game development, it is the most dependent on individual developers. Like, it, yeah. uh, it has the most mentioned returns on people you can put on the job and get the same amount of returns for that job. I, I was going to say, it's just that there's a lot of people coming out of, like, colleges and computer science courses that sign up to be programmers. Which there, is... there are, but, like, uh, do, if, if you know anybody development, if you have, the more people you have working on a code, it, it's harder to get them caught up with the code. You have less, you, can, you have a maximum amount of people that can work on the code because you have to make sure you're conscious of what, how, what you're changing with the code and how, what's affecting. You can't have... Uh, it's a, if you're doing about development, you know that. Well, it's, it, you can't have like a high turnover rate. Yeah. Imagining like EA being like, let's just fire, hire, fire all our striking developers <laughs> and get doing. Like, do it, do it, motherfuckers! Like, I fucking dare you, you fucking piece of shit! Like, try it! Like, you will fucking cry begging for for, for the, the, the striking workers. Like, I, I guarantee it. Yeah, and there's a good quote from one of the people at the, at this conference saying. 
if you're not at the table, you're essentially on the menu. Basically, if you're not part of the negotiation process, you're something that's going to be offered up as a way to cut costs. So, and that's basically like something people are more and more conscious of nowadays that they're demanding a place to be part, a place at the table of negotiations. So they're not just something that's a number to be changed to save uh, costs for the, the shareholders or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an optimistic thing about our future. Yeah, definitely. So as Sly mentioned that employers are trying more and more to make workers expendable and replaceable. And even yeah. though in some industries like game developing and teaching, that's hard to do, but in other industries, like a lot of them, it's really easy. So I'm going to talk a lot next episode about automation. Yeah. Can you unionize fast food workers? Yeah. yeah. That's the thing. Yeah. <laughs> that's the hard part. Yes. That is so there's point. things that are really hard to unionize, like fast food workers, things like that, that are quickly becoming automated. And I'm going to talk about the dangers of automation later. But right now I want to talk about a optimistic solution that a lot of big like thinkers in you know in modern culture are talking about like people like mark zuckerberg when he's not testifying and elon musk and people like that and a lot of people are talking about universal (laughs) universal basic income which is exactly what it sounds like everybody just gets money to live yeah and the one of the things about this is we have had attempts to do universal universal basic income in the past but they've always kind of fallen short for a couple different reasons one of the reasons why is because like Sly said earlier a lot of the moderates and a lot of the people in controlling the status quo are terrified of something like this and we tried it a couple different times one of the times we tried it is lbj when he had his whole like the the war on poverty he tried to impl- implement a uni- universal basic income, which Nixon actually continued. And then what happened was they had small sample sizes at the beginning and people rushed to draw inaccurate conclusions that have been, t- that have been disproven time and time again. But it, it, but they took so long to disprove that the next administrations had already ended things. So like, that's why, by the way, that, that's a very common tactic because the one quote that's, uh, uh, that sums it up is when somebody lies on TV, a million people will see the lie and like a thousand people will see the retraction on internet yeah. later on. Mm-hmm. So like for some reason, there was a big study out in 1979 that universal basic income led to higher divorce rates and Reagan was like, gotta help the family. So he canceled <laughs> the whole program. Even though like Reagan like legalized divorce rates and divorce in California. <laughs> Like, yeah. <laughs> and and also it not only did you have these studies but you also had a lot of media outlets like the New York Times ran huge editorials about how universal basic income was a failure and was destroying America. Well, New York Times is like it's fucking terrible so fuck. Yeah. Them. So when we have smaller sample sizes it's really really hard to do. And and like Mm-hmm. to expand it because you always get people jumping on it. So right here, July 20th, 2017, why Finland's basic income experiment isn't working. That's the name of this opinion piece. Now, if you actually read the opinion piece, it's all about how in Finland, the sample size is too small. And if they don't expand the sample size, it's a completely useless study that tells us nothing. And it's just, it spits in the face of people that want a universal basic income. So we shouldn't even talk about it. Like, I don't, Okay. Do you know what the sample size was? So in Finland, so that's what I want to get to. In Finland, it started as 2,000 people. Ah! Generally, if you have over 1,000, that is a good sample size that you can apply to an entire demographic. So oh, scientist uh, Daryl here. <laughs> yeah. So it started with 2,000, and they what happened was people... There was a lot of back and forth on how they should do it, and they had a compromise between the right and the left where they would, instead of just giving it to random people because you can't constitutionally just, like, cut people's wages and give other people money instead, what they did was they took people that were on the unemployment list, and instead of giving them the regular unemployment benefits, they upped the pay to 560 euros a month for two years with no strings attached, and they would study how it affected their lives. Now, the thing, one of the things that's important that I want to talk about is Finland's background before they implemented this, which is called the Kila program. In Finland, taxes are generally at around 35%, but with like local taxes and things like that compounded, it's really about a 50% income rate, uh, income tax. And when you look at like the wealth gap and the way wealth is broken down in Finland, you have 
Things like the richest 20% of Finns earn four times what the poorest 20%, which is compared to about eight times what it is in America, and the median annual income is about 43000 which is a quarter less than the U.S., but well above Italy and Spain. And that's basically, like, it's a, it's a complicated way of saying that, for the most part, Finland is more across the board, like, more balanced. There's less of a wealth gap. But after the recession and Nokia's demise when smartphones came up, Finland's economy got hit really, really hard, and their unemployment rate was 7%, which was twice what the U.S. is. So they had to implement this program, and they hoped that by doing it, it would reduce the amount of time people were unemployment on, on unemployment benefits and hope to save about 200 million euros. And one thing I want to point out to just give Sly some credibility, Finns are 70% unionized. So that's something. So the the sample size is only 2,000. And one of the things that I do want to point out is Finland is very, very... They're keeping this stuff really under lock and key at first because they want to keep it as like pure and untainted as possible. So all the evidence we have so far is just purely anecdotal. But one thing that we can compare it to is a universal basic income that we've seen in America that's been in place for almost 20 years. And that's in Alaska. And in Alaska, they have a program called Alaska Permanent Fund Dividend. And it's been in place for 25 years. And what they do is they have unconditional cash payments to about $2,000 per person. And what they've seen is that most of the things that people are afraid of, oh, it'll make people lazy, they won't want to work, or it'll tank the economy because things are too expensive. What they've seen is it has had no impact on full-time employment. So that people haven't lost their main jobs, and they haven't quit, And but part-time work increased by about 17%. So we saw that more people were able to work part-time and it created more part-time jobs because people didn't have to work full-time just to pay for all their bills. So what they do is they would have half of it covered by the income and then the other half covered by work and it allowed now two people to work the same job and survive on it. So you actually were making more use out of the same amount of jobs without touching full-time employers. And that's a very important point uh, to uh, to write because, like you mentioned, automation so like that, and the, the idea is that uh, it, right now we're having this problem where we're automating more jobs and all this shit, and less less jobs are gonna be available. But uh, with uh, UBI now, you can make it easier for people to work part time jobs and still survive. Even, even like jobs that used to be full time cannot be part time, and you, the people who did them don't have to die now. <laughs> yeah, and because of the because of like the relatively new projects and everything at a at a nationwide level, it's hard to get full statistics on how it would bolster an economy. So most of the like speculations like oh this will add 12 billion dollars to the economy everything are from sources that I didn't find completely trustworthy. So like mm-hmm. I haven't seen any full numbers on how it would affect like GDP. But when you look at certain states like Alaska that have done this for decades, it has helped their economy because when you have poor people and you give them money, they spend it on things like necessary goods Mm -hmm. because they saw that in Alaska, the majority of that money was spent on necessary goods. So that's things like food, things like shelter, things like water, things like healthcare, And that goes back into the economy where when rich people have more money, they save it. Yep. They sit on it. (laughs) They sit on it and it doesn't go back to the economy. Now, yeah. There are plenty, you know, there's, we're not going to get into a whole argument about that. Yeah, that's one of the most confusing things about, like, right talking points of arguing against giving, like, poor people more money is they spend that money. Like, poor people are going to be like, good, now I'll burn this $2,000 I get a month on, it's like, they buy products with that. They buy things. They buy products from the rich people. Yeah. Well, one of the reasons reasons why we had a 90% tax rate in, um, back in the 50s and stuff like that, Mm -hmm. uh, top marginal tax rate. Was because we uh, America wanted to incentivize the rich from hoarding, uh, and because if you hoard money, it doesn't do anything. It just it, it and mm-hmm. uh, people act, people act like when you just go for like one of the other bullshits of capitalism, along with the uh, unstoppable growth that'll never end ever, is the idea that uh, you can have mega 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 rich and still have everyone to be doing well. When in reality, uh, it is a zero sum game. If the rich are getting richer and richer, the poor are going to get getting poorer and poorer. But that's now because of triple down economic theory and all this bullshit. They basically found a way to repackage it so that by having the rich hoard, they're somehow helping the economy when there's nothing to back it up. Mm-hmm. And 
with especially when you're in when you're investing in poor people especially in poor countries things like universal basic income can totally overhaul the entire economy because in kenya they implemented this and it only took 22 dollars a month to lift people out of poverty wow yeah that's that's just unbelievable and now one thing that i want to point out that might trigger sly a little bit do you know who do you know who said we should have a universal basic income oh who said it (laughs) Milton Friedman. Oh yeah, that's a, that's a, that's not surprising to me because it is becoming a more of, like even libertarians are boring UBI and uh, that's some, like even the left are like saying no UBI must be bad because Milton Friedman said it's good and because uh, libertarians saying it's good because a lot of people on the left do view it as basically basically more beholden to the rich because now I, 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 by the grace of them you'll get UBI like they'll 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 be able to keep making mega 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 wealth while we get like. 50 cents as a UBI and say, that should be good enough. Each shit yeah. poor. So, uh, Which I mean, like, I would rather get the... <laughs> I, I, I want to fix I'm... the rich problem, but I'd rather have them giving us money than them giving us nothing and they get keep more money. Yeah, it's, 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 it's you know, uh, that's a discussion for another time. And I, mm-hmm. I don't know how much I, I agree with the left on that. I, I do... I'd rather just stop the rich from being mega mega rich i don't yeah. like if they're gonna compromise on this and we can crush them afterwards sure fuck <laughs> it. But, but like yeah like i in, in it but it, ryan's right that a lot of the left but not me because i'm a reasonable left but a lot of the left <laughs> do get triggered by the uh, idea of ubi because of uh association to freeman stuff like that it's interesting that friedman proposed it yeah, yeah. It's, 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 that's why when i talk about like Things being arbitrary, like uh, labels being arbitrary in politics, because things like gun control used to be a uh, conservative position, a uh, liberal position, now it's conservative position. It, it switch, everything switches over time. It, like put a contest can change things completely. Like the way the uh, society, sh- like the way the society thinks, changes so much. Like Democrat being the racist one, mm-hmm. now it's Republican being the racist one. Like people who uh, attach too much uh, association with labels are usually stupid. That's what well, I'll now- say. That, that's actually really interesting when we talk about the public perception because it actually has changed over time. Yeah. We're getting very, very close to even. So if we look at how people polled feel about, like Americans polled, according to a new North Northeastern University Gallup poll from last month, 48% of Americans support a university basic income and 52% don't. But that's that's pretty close. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And But 10 years ago, only 12% approved of it. And... That's one of the things that it's all about how you frame it. Because when we poll Finland, 70% of people supported a universal basic, universal basic income. Ex, I can't say it. Basic. Ex, <laughs> UBI. Yeah. Just say UBI. Okay. So 70% of Finnish people supported a UBI. But when it was then said this would raise taxes to 55% instead of that 50%, 30% of people have approved of it. <laughs> so one thing that's really important is in a lot of studies that I saw... If you just tax everyone equally and then pay for it, it actually doesn't change anything. It doesn't help the economy or help people at all because what you're doing is basically just taking from one hand and putting it in the other. Mm -hmm. But if you were to rework your tax code to, I don't know, maybe close loopholes and tax Tax the rich rich. Yeah, then it might work a little bit better. So some of the other some of the other things that I find really interesting about this is we actually Finland is one of the only government programs that we see it, but we do see a lot of private companies investing in this kind of research, which I don't really know why. Oh no, it's because Sly's right. We're gonna be we're gonna be beholden to the rich people when Walmart starts paying you the UBI. Yeah. But you can only spend it on Walmart goods. Yeah, exactly. It's gonna be Amazon especially. Oh yeah, Amazon's it's gonna, gonna be Amazon, like- yeah. Amazon dollars, you go to Amazon hospitals, you go to Amazon, <laughs> Amazon plans. So, like, it, this company, Y Combinator, ran a UBI in California, and it's it just ended. I don't I don't have the final research yet, but it they gave uh, some people $2,000 a month, unconditional, to see what would happen. We have Mayor Michael Tubbs, who's a 27-year-old mayor in Stockton, California. He is giving a few dozen families $500 a month, no strings attached. And these things have gone back, like Thomas Paine said we should do this. And the way Milton Friedman talked about it was he talked about it as a negative income tax, where the first, you don't pay any income tax on the first, you know, whatever the number was. I'm not sure what his hard line was. But if you make less than that, the government covers you up to that amount. And if you make more than that, then you get taxed on what's above that, which is basically the exact same thing, except the only difference is with a UBI, you don't have to work at all to get the that thing. It's not like you'll get it even if you are working or if you're not working, it doesn't matter. And so I'm hopeful that as we see more data and with 
you know, we can find much more sources than it used to be like in the late 70s where the New York Times said it was terrible, so all the liberals said it was terrible. I'm hoping that once Finland publishes their studies, we'll get to see larger sample sizes. And like Daryl said, 2000 is not nothing for sure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I'm I'm hoping that we can see not just private companies and like the the thing in Stockton is funded by entrepreneurs and philanthropists it's not coming from taxpayer dollars so i'm hoping that we could see some real studies from taxpayer dollars and that as automation phases more and more jobs out maybe we can all switch to a more part-time based to kind of spread the jobs out more because all evidence shows that when people are given a guaranteed income it does not reduce employment in fact more people go to work Mm. yeah and I just want to end with a quote from Martin Luther King from the exact same speech where he said the bootstraps were from before. He said, now, one of the answers, it seems to me, is a guaranteed annual income, a guaranteed minimum income for all people and for all families of our country. It seems to me that the civil rights movement must now begin to organize for the guaranteed annual income. So this is not a new idea, but it's one that I think is being taken more seriously now than ever before. Hmm. And also, one thing to know is, uh, as production, as as, as we've uh, become more efficient our, with our technology and stuff like that, uh, workers have become more productive. Our wages have not kept up with our productivity. They've been stagnated since the seventies when they started having uh, class warfare from the very rich on us. Yeah, you know, the idea is that when you work harder, you get a better life for yourself, et cetera, et cetera. But reality, all we've done is increase the amount of work we have to do on ourselves, and like uh, hours have been increasing. And their benefits have been decreasing, et cetera, et cetera. So it's kind of, it's kind of, there's a paradox with, I forget the actual term, but it's a term for how when, when coal got a bit more efficient, uh, we produce more and more coal because of it. Like there was never a point where since we used coal more efficiently, we use less coal overall. Like we always will find a way to uh, eat up that difference. Any, any, uh, we'll just find ways to eat up. Uh, the more efficient we can use something, the more we're going to use of it. We're not. We're never going to make less of it as we use it more efficiently. Like that's always a bullshit ph- philosophy. Yeah, and that's basically been the philosophy with workers. Like, and most studies have shown that when you give people universal basic income, their productivity yeah. increases because they have better mental health. They're yeah. less stressed. They're less overworked. Because like I know for me personally, I'll work more than I should because I need the money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's you know I know. Dozens of people that are in that exact same boat, or people nowadays we're seeing people just don't retire anymore. Yeah, and uh, there's an article I forgot to mention uh, in my segment, but in a month ago, uh, Germany, when, in Germany, uh, one of their biggest employers agreed to uh, one of the largest trade unions uh, for a 28-hour work week. They already had a 35-hour work week. Now they negotiate negotiated down to a 28-hour work week. So, uh, and, and people are talking about this, and the idea is like what I was getting to. No one thinks about work as work. We have a life-work balance as much anymore. The idea is you work until you die, basically. Like Ryan yeah. said, no one's retiring. Everyone works until they die. And what I'm, uh, uh, the point I was trying to get with the, the using workers a bit more efficiently is that when we work, we use workers more efficiently, the idea is that you work them more to death. And it's never that they will they will get more time and more of a work-life balance to enjoy the fruits of their labors more. And that's what Germany, German union leaders are trying to work towards. That's part of the goal of this. According to financialtimes.com, it, the article talks about how uh, the growing movement in Germany is to focus more on work-life balance, to get more from the work they've done. And if now that if we're going to have UBI, we have more jobs, transition, more people working part-time, that should be a, a focus. With the unionization of the UBI, we should be focusing not just that we, we're, we're already working efficiently, we should also be working so we have benefits from what we're working for, for working for it shouldn't be just all about the product even though trends tend to seem terrible i think we've all kind of seen that there are still things that we can do and there's things we're pushing against it mm-hmm. so like that's it's almost like the the silver lining if you will permit me this is like a, a privileged white dude the silver lining of the trump presidency is that it mobilizes people and gets them angry because they're yeah. like, I, I don't want to suffer anymore. I, like, I want life to be better. And if you're not going to make it better, I'm going to go out into the streets and yell about it until you hear me. Well, keep in mind, uh, people like a lot of people do like I, I, people that, uh, do like the what if scenario saying, what if Hillary won? It'll be so much better. Mm-hmm. Keep in mind that Hillary will almost guarantee to lose in 20, uh, 2020. We will not have the gains. Where, like 2018 was going to be a lot, was considered a lost cause uh, back in the Yeah, it, it would have been interesting to see, like, whether or not, like, how the Democrats would shift after realizing how close the election would have been. 
they would not have. You can see the, the, the establishment, the actual leaders. Hmm. They would not. Be, the, the, uh, the, the actual leaders would not have wanted to change. They don't want to change now. The DCC is not. Yeah, want to that's change. true. Even after losing, that they're still dragging their feet. Nancy Pelosi is still the Speaker of the House. Mm-hmm. I mean, not the Speaker of the House, the Minority yeah. Leader. It's all momentum from below. It's all. Yeah. It's all direct action from the people that's really encouraging this blue this blue uh, wave. It's all really the people all coming out uh, supporting individual candidates. And all coming out and, and supporting people, and that that probably would have been less likely with with uh, Hillary Clinton presidency. Just like we all were sedated under Obama presidency. Yeah. There's a general idea when the Democrats are pres- president, everything's gonna be okay. We have these crazy Republicans holding them back, but everything's gonna be okay. You feel like the country's at least going in the right direction, kind of a yeah. thing. But when, when yeah. Trump won, it really showed us that these underlying problems were there the whole time. Mm-hmm. We have to start addressing them now mm-hmm. while we still can. It's nice to know that there are ways to address them. That when yeah. we go on strike, when we fight for things like universal basic income, when kids are fed up with school shootings, they can do something and get results. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, and even the Me Too movement, getting all these people shamed from the industry. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's it it's really it's really nice and comforting. I can't wait for November of this year because it's going to feel like at least a little bit of the weight is lifted off our shoulders of like the terror of the future we will at least have a uh, limited trump's power hopefully yep. we're getting impeached but, but that's yeah, uh... oh baby ooh. don't <laughs> oh, t- yeah. talk dirty to me tell me about Mueller's investigation <laughs> okay yeah. that's a whole weird butter me up slight <laughs> well that's the real optimism ryan <laughs> yeah uh okay well Thanks, everybody, for listening. You should rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. You should join our Discord. I, more than ever, want people to join our Discord and our Facebook group, Oops, I Talk Divisive Issues, because it would be nice to hear other good things that are happening, because we, yeah. these are the only ones we can think of. <laughs> yeah, Phil could even have a topic. He's like, fuck this guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that would be really great. And while you're hanging out, you should also check out the other shows of the Conrad Radio Network. Uh, Tales from the Static just released a bonus episode to get ready for the next season, and it's where Ryan Healy tries to piece together the pieces of Static Streams, an 80s horror show, and someone sent in an audio clip from the show, and (sighs) his little sister is yelling about film me dancing during this clip, but you can still hear part of the pilot, which is really cool, (laughs) and it was a really great episode, so everyone should listen to that at ComradeRadio.com. Cool. So, thank you guys all for listening to Oops, I Talk Politics. I've been mooching off my universal basic income. I can't pronounce universal basic income. <laughs> and 80% of me believes that the rich should pay higher taxes. Ha, huh, that's a lie. 100% of me believes that. <laughs> <laughs> Oops, I ended the podcast. Radio.com. Independent Podcasting Network. If that makes any sense, what I'm saying, my rambling, sorry. No, that makes sense. Okay. Oh, thank God. Daryl, did that make sense? Yeah. You're always yeah. honest with me. Okay, good. Wait, I'm not honest? No, you, you're, too, you're, too, you're too nice, Ryan. You're, you're too... <laughs> this is the optimistic like, oh, podcast. Ryan, you're too nice to me. <laughs> yeah, you're too nice to me.